going to be looking at um, Revelation chapter 4 uh, this morning for a few minutes. If we overrun slightly, I think it's okay, um, so don't worry. Don't worry about the, the time. Um, we're going to look at like I said, Revelation 4 for a few minutes this morning. If you want to grab that and open that, we'll read it in a second together. Um, but let me just read you a little thing that I, I saw this week that isn't actually a joke. Um, it's kind of sweet, I guess. A little boy was found by his mother with a pencil and paper making a sketch When asked what he was doing, he answered promptly and with considerable pride, I'm drawing a picture of God. But, gasped his shocked mother, you cannot do that. No one has seen God and no one knows what God looks like. Well, the little boy replied with confidence, they will when I'm finished. But what about you? When you imagine what God looks like, what God is like, What images go through your mind when you imagine the appearance of the King of Kings, the eternal God amongst all things? When I was first a Christian and much younger than I am now, um, most of us, if you were like me, probably imagine the old man with the beard sitting on a cloud somewhere, not doing very much, but looking regal perhaps. I wonder what your your, your imagination, uh, where it goes when you imagine what God looks like. In fact, do it now. Shut your eyes if you want to. Uh, what does God look like? What do you imagine God to be like? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, don't forget, that should already blow your mind. How can you imagine one God who is also three persons, distinct and separate and equal, yet one in their uh, substance and their essence? Do you imagine, um, where do you imagine God is? Where is he? Do you imagine God in heaven or on earth? Is God, uh, when do you imagine God? In the past, at the end of history, now? The, God that you, the image of God that you're imagining in your head is God alone. Do you imagine all three members of the Trinity or just one being encompassing the three somehow? Do you imagine the courtroom of heaven that we're going to look at this morning? And uh, you can open your eyes now. I've pondered this question this week. What do you imagine when you think of God? And actually it is more than a rhetorical question. Because your answer... And more importantly, more crucially, how you arrive at your answer to that question, even if you haven't got a clear picture. When I was first a Christian, I just imagined the word God, because I couldn't really conceive anything else, which is good. If you think you've conceived what God looks like, I put it to you that you have a very small God and you've made him up. Um, If you can conceive all of God, then you have not got the concept of the biblical God, the only true God. But your grasp of God determines absolutely everything. How you arrive at your understanding of who God is, is the most vital thing any Christian can do. It's interesting in Exodus chapter 20, when the Israelites are given the Ten Commandments from the top of Sinai on those two stone tablets written by the very finger of God. The first one is, you should have no God before me. But then God follows it up with a very unusual thing, which is you mustn't make anything in heaven and earth uh, in the form of God, an idol of anything a living creature or anything. Nothing should be made to represent God. And it's interesting that when God gives the beginning of his law to his people, he says, number one, I'm the only one. I'm to be your number one above every other God so-called, because there's only one God. Don't let anyone do differently. But then you're not even to attempt to boil me down to a little statue or a picture. Because the moment you do that, you will misunderstand who God is. I wonder how many of us have boiled God down to something small that we could fit neatly in a spiritual pocket that just 
kind of is a good luck charm perhaps or just goes along with us answering our prayers when they're really, really important to us. But if we misunderstand who God is, if we misrepresent God in our mind, everything unravels around us. There's a man named Francis Chan, who some of you will know. He's a very well-known Christian. Uh, he's an American, um, and he uh, is a quite a radical chap in his own way. He makes some really crazy decisions that probably most of us wouldn't make. But he's awesome. Anyway, he's awesome. Anyway, he was doing a mission over in Africa, I think it was. And he was in a particular part of Africa, I forget where, and they had a big open-air mission. And all these Christian young people came um, teenagers and the like and they, and they had this really wonderful long time worship arms in the air and he thought this is spectacular you don't really you might get it at places in the US you don't get it elsewhere outside of uh, places like Africa and Asia perhaps and South America but there was this amazing work and he thought he was so impressed and he said to one of the event organizers look at this this is phenomenal and the guy said don't believe a word of it he said because the moment they leave this field or wherever they were they're all going to get smashed they're going to get drunk and they're going to start sleeping around, and this is all for show. And Francis Chan was absolutely brokenhearted. The next night when they all came back, he wept over them. He cried, and he said to them, how can you behave like that when you say you worship the king? Do you even know the God you worship? If you knew him, how could you go and sleep around and get drunk? How can you? And he cried, and he knelt on the floor, and he begged them to live in an appropriate way to the king above all kings. You see, if you misunderstand who God is, everything unravels your entire life and your faith. When we don't know God correctly, our faith develops a kind of air bubble, a vacuum in the middle of it. And the problem with that vacuum is it still has the appearance of a passionate faith because we come to church, we do all the things we should do. But that little vacuum then becomes filled with sin and apathy and blandness where it should be filled with beautiful passionate, majestic visions of the glory of our God. The way you know if you've got a vacuum in your faith is that this book is a stranger to you and this activity is alien to you. And everything else then unravels around that when those two things go. That's why Satan loves it when we don't pray and read the word of God. So I'm going to ask you to stop for a second and uh, we probably are going to run over but it's all right. Chapter 4, Revelation, we're going to look at this morning. And I'm going to read it to you. It's just 11 verses. And I want you to shut your eyes. I want you to actually shut your eyes. And I want you just to hear every single word of what I'm about to read. I want you to hear every single sound. Imagine every single image. Imagine that you're standing where John is about to stand. And imagine how you would feel if you were him. So just please shut your eyes for a moment at home as well. John writes, after this... I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard at first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In the front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. 
Also in front of the throne, there were what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. Can you imagine standing there with John and seeing this wonderful picture of what heaven, this is what God looks like. This is who your God is. This is who my God is. Can you imagine having that vantage point of God? And this is the sort of thing that should ignite our hearts as Christians. We should not have a small idol type sized God that fits into our lifestyle pocket and follows us around. We should have this big view of God that is so in awe, so magnificent that we couldn't describe him if we had a thousand years and all the words ever written. And I love that in those first two verses, there's this open door to heaven and Jesus says to John, come up here. It's an invitation, a standing invitation to come and see what's about to happen. This is what's going to happen at the end of history. The book of Revelation uh, is like a standing invite to every single believer and non-believer to come and see what really is going to happen at the end. What really the end of this story of history has actually already been written. What's actually going to transpire and how the end will come. It's an invitation to come and have a look and then live accordingly and yet so often we we get to the 65th book of the bible and we go oh i stop there because this mentions beasts and the sea and the great prostitute and it's all very strange and i don't want to get into the be one of those people that accuses the pope of being the antichrist or tony blair or someone like that well then just don't be ridiculous (laughs) and read it like a grown-up and read it like a mature commonsensical christian Don't try and find the mark of the beast on every single thing that happens. But read it. Read it for what it is. God's work for the end of history. God's triumph over sin. God's destruction of evil. And his victory over everything. And the victory of his people. I urge you to engage with this book. And I love the fact that John gets to see everything that's going to unfold in human history from the vantage point of the throne room of God. And it really touched me this week. Psalm 73, verses 1 to 17, which I won't read. Um, The psalmist speaks of ungodly people. Ungodly people that disregard God, rebel against him, attack the godly and the righteous. And he keeps saying over and over, why do they prosper? Where's God? What's happening? And he says, I didn't understand any of it until I went into the temple. And then I understood their fate. And actually, there's a lesson here. If you want to understand what's happening in your life and the world right now, you need to be in the throne room of God, the vantage point of heaven, not of earth. He sees all of this from standing next to the throne of God. And of course, everything that he sees makes perfect sense because he understands 
the one that's in charge. There's a vagueness to John's language in verse 3. You may not realize it, but he's quite vague. He doesn't even attempt to actually describe in detail what God looks like, how tall he is, how long his arms are, that kind of thing. We get these, uh, these jewels um, that he mentions, jasper and ruby. We get this description of the colors and the sounds. We get this appearance of the rainbow. And, uh, and it's a loaded uh, thing these days, isn't it? But the rainbow is only meant to remind us of the faithfulness of God. In Genesis, the rainbow after the flood reminds us of the faithfulness of God not to flood the world again. And here it is above his throne. He is the one who keeps his promises that we can trust in above all. Verse 4, we get to these very strange 24 elders. Who on earth are they? It's very random, isn't it? You've got God there and you've got these 12 thrones either side. Who are they? Some people say perhaps they're just sort of parallel to the priests in the temple in the Old Testament. Another person wrote that maybe this is a, this is a summary of all of God's people. There were 12 tribes in the Old Testament. There were 12 apostles in the New. And Jesus speaks of his apostles ruling with him. And so perhaps this is uh, both of those groups of people together. All of God's people from old and new, one people. But what you should take away from this is not necessarily who they are, but what they do. They have their own uh, dignity and regal view. This white robes and the golden crowns. This is the heavenly courtroom where God is judge, where God is king. And what do they do with their own personal glory? They put it down at the feet of the king. They take off their golden crown. They throw it at the feet of God often. And so let me ask this morning, any of you here who are Christians, myself included, or watching at home, do you wear a crown Are you a manager or a boss or a parent or a teacher or a nurse or a doctor? Do you have a budget that you have sole responsibility of? Do you have status and power in this world? Well, then make sure every morning you take your crown off and start your day with it at the feet of the real king, just in case you begin to think that they serve you and you forget that you serve him. We get to verses five and six and a half, or six A if you're a mature Christian, because that's what we do, isn't it? Uh, we get this very dramatic, loud description of thunder that comes from the throne of God. It reminds us of Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. Much of what we read is meant to remind us of the temple. This is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, our God. And then you get this weird description of this sea of glass. Um, let me read that to you. In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And it's very strange, isn't it? What is this sea of glass that we have here? Well, we're reminded of Solomon's throne in 1 Kings, verses 7 to 23, where he had a, a giant metal bowl that would be filled with water by his throne, a king of Israel. And the meaning of that sea, literally a sea, was to represent the the chaotic forces that water represents in the Bible and how God has brought all of it under control. We think of Genesis chapter 1, the spirit of the Lord hovering over the deep and then bringing order to chaos through creation. But I love the fact that it's see-through, it's clear like crystal. One commentator I read uh, this week said that they said, they, they, they didn't say they said they did say, um, that, that this sea of crystal was the floor of heaven and the ceiling of the created universe. And my mind is doing somersaults at this point. Not only can I not quite understand what God looks like, all the 24 elders, or how big the throne room is, now imagine the floor being see-through. 
And actually, John is almost looking at the entire universe underneath his feet. And in my mind, uh, and this commentator was saying a similar thing, there's such peace in heaven. There's peace and there's calm and there's majesty. But underneath, he's watching the beast rise from the sea. He's watching the great prostitute. He's seeing the bowls of wrath poured on. But it's through that calm of that floor of heaven. It's peaceful where John is. It's right where John is. It's controlled where John is. The chaos of the world is under the sovereignty of the one on the throne. He watches it unfold below him. And yet, he's in the confidence of the presence of God. And why wouldn't that be true for us? When we go through terrible times, as we all do, why wouldn't we want to stand in the throne of God in the peace and the calm of the presence of our king, watching it unfold around us, perhaps, but knowing that we're safe in his presence? And then we get these odd creatures, some more odd creatures, in verses 6b to verse 8. And you get these four living creatures, one like a lion, one like an eagle, um, one like a man. I've forgotten the fourth one. (laughs) Hang on. Someone tell me, what's the other one? An ox, thank you. And, uh, and of course, these have appeared a couple of times in the Old Testament. This is my COVID brain, you see, I forget everything. Um, in the Old Testament, this has appeared, these have appeared a few times. And one person suggested that what they are is a, is a kind of weird uh, culmination of everything created. Things that walk on the ground, uh, cattle, human beings, things that fly. It's almost as if these are everything that God has created so we see not just divine, uh, sort of more special beings in the 24 hours, but we see a culmination of everything that God has created. And what do they do? Well, they submit again to their creator. They worship him. And then we read in verses 9 to 11 that when these four living creatures worship God, the 24 take off their crowns and they too worship God and sing his praise, not just sometimes, but endlessly forever and ever and ever. The only adequate response to God. And when I read verses like that in the book of Revelation, it's why this ban on singing or this suggestion we shouldn't sing is so painful because this is our eternal joy to praise the name of the King of Kings and to have not done it for 14 months is beyond painful. And so, what now, having gone through all of that very quickly? Well, we must take in the majesty of God. Everything we've just read sets up chapter 5 where we're going to meet Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who left that very throne room to come to earth, but is now back there with his Father, but with the marks of the cross on his face and his hands and his feet and his side. He's the one who is now presented as worthy, worthy to open the scroll and open the seals and enact God's final plans for this world. Chapter 4 shows us that God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God has all authority. God is in all things and above all things. That God is holy and majestic and great and his throne is above every other. It's fascinating that this week the G7 have uh, timed their visit with my preaching on Revelation chapter 4. It was very good of them. Um, Although they shouldn't be in Cornwall. I'm pretty certain that's on the red list. Anyway, um, it feels like it. I can't go anywhere, so why should they? Um, The G7, although there were nine of them, came along and all of that power, the Americans and the British and uh, I think Japan was there, I can't remember who was there, um, all of that power is minuscule compared to the ones seated on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. Governments love to set targets. Governments love to play God. Governments love to offer salvation. Well, that's the rhetoric they use. But they have no power, no authority 
to do a single thing unless it was given to them from above. Think of Jesus and Pilate for a similar reference. Revelation asks its readers by its presentation of God simply this. Is he your king of kings? Will you fight for him? Will you serve him? Will you honor him? Will you obey him? Will you be holy for him? Will you speak to him? Will you submit to him? Will you come up here and see what's about to take place? Will you fill the vacuum with what he intended it to be filled with? Not stuff, but his glory. Last week we spoke about losing our first love, albeit I had to shout at you from outside. So let's ask a question of all of us. Having seen God on the throne, has sin slipped into our daily routine? Is prayer the thing that we used to do? Has God shrunk in our mind and our life? The door to heaven remains open. The 24 elders and the four creatures are at this precise moment laying prostrate on the throne room of God, crying out at the top of their voice, holy, holy, holy. They do that now as we sit in this room. The throne rumbles and crashes with thunder and those lights emit from it. We're called to enter the throne room in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. And so let me finish by saying this. God, that God, sees you. That God knows you. The real question is, do you see him? Because this isn't just John's imagination like the little boy I mentioned at the beginning. This is real. This is what God actually looks like. Is your heart for him? Do you love him? Do you obey him? Does God occupy the space in your life that he deserves, requires, and frankly commands? Do we ignore him in our daily routines? Do we disobey that call to holiness? Have we made an idol of our own misconceptions of God and are just quite happy with them? This is our king. And we submit in humble reverence to him. We do not want to be like the people in that field who come and worship and go home and sin. We need to be people that recognize our God and his love for us and his wonderful grace in sending his son and submit our lives to him, whatever that may look like and however painful that may be perhaps. I'm going to pray. We can't do our last song, I'm afraid. But let me just pray for you and pray for myself as well and then we better finish. But Father God, in fact, why don't you stand? Father God, we want to start, Father, just as we finish this service, we'll start with the word sorry. Lord, we want to start with an acknowledgement, Father, and, and, and people can just add their own context as I pray. But Lord, we want to start by acknowledging before you the things that we have not done that we should have done. Father God, we are excellent at making excuses on this earth. Lord, we've only got to go back to Mount Sinai where they made the golden calf as the uh, storm of holiness raised above them, Lord, where they could see it. And they said, well, it took too long. So, Father, we want to ask your forgiveness for those times, Lord, in the last 14 months particularly, I think, Lord, when we have not honoured you, when we have not treated you as our one and only God, but we have formed idols in our lives and we've excused ourselves, Lord, from following you the way you call us to. And Father, we say individually, Father, forgive me. 
Lord, forgive me for not putting you first. And Lord, we want to thank you that despite the awe of that vision of John and all that's about to happen in the book of Revelation, Father, we want to thank you that, Lord, you're a God of majesty and justice and righteousness, but we get to call you Abba, Father. You're the God, Lord, who sent his son from that very throne room into this broken world to redeem it and save it. So, Lord, you challenge us and you call us to say sorry, but, Lord, it's out of love because you love us, because you don't want us to look like the world, but to look like Jesus. So, Father, thank you for your grace. And, Lord, I want to commit my life, recommit myself to you this morning. Lord, whatever you've been calling me to, be it the next step in my faith, Father, I pray that you would give me the courage to do it. I will do it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to honor you in everything I do. Father, we are your children, and we pray that you would discipline and challenge and bring us back, Lord, into the sheepfold so that we hear your voice and your voice alone. And Lord, I lift everything we've said to you this morning. May we keep that vision of yourself this week, and may that guide us. We pray nothing else. And Lord, as we go from this place now, we pray for your blessing on everyone here and those not with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.